Welcome to the Grace Life Church podcast. My name is Parker Smith, lead pastor of Grace Life Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you to the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. Jeff and Praise Team, y'all did a wonderful job this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open with me to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to continue walking through this Advent series together. And uh, if I want to say again, if you're a guest, we welcome you here. And do us a favor, if you don't mind, fill that perforated card out in your bulletin. Put it in the offering plates up front or in the back. That'll be uh, your uh, gift to us. And we want to just encourage you. We won't bother you. I promise that. We just want to uh, keep in contact with you as best we can. But um, we want to say a word of welcome to you. So again, Isaiah 9, we're going to walk through um, these four descriptors. We've walked through three of them right now. Uh, but we're going to hit the final one this morning, namely Prince of Peace. So we've said it every single week. Uh, that the term Advent simply means a dawning or beginning or an arrival. In the Latin, it means to come. And so we're looking at Isaiah 9, this one individual passage that Isaiah gives to us, four names that are given. And so we began in week one, and we saw that Jesus Christ, it is the incarnate Christ. It is the incarnate God who comes, and He is our wonderful counselor who will faithfully lead and shepherd God's people. Week two, we saw that he is not only a wonderful counselor, but he is the mighty God. He's the God of all might, and he's all sovereign and all powerful. Yet he's not merely a God that just stays in the heavens with the lights on. He's also the God of all grace. And the beauty of the gospel and the good news of Jesus is that the lights in the heavens weren't going off and that was it. No, Jesus came down and he came as a child, he came in, the, in flesh and blood, and he came to save his people. And God is a God of all might, but God is also the God of all grace. And the mighty God contains both grace and mercy and might. Week three, we saw that he is our everlasting father, and that he cares for his people, and that he is a king over his people, and a king over the whole world. And one day he's coming to declare his righteous kingdom through all creation and that he will establish his dominion over this earth. And he is the everlasting father, his king, he is Lord, and he will govern his people faithfully. The context as we've seen uh, every single week is the, what we call the Syro-informatic crisis in which King Ahaz was the king of Israel, the king of Judah. And instead of trusting the Lord when a threat comes from the northern kingdom of Jerusalem and the Syrians, instead of trusting God to deliver them and to deliver the southern kingdom of Judah, King Ahaz, in a moment of panic, turns to the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, and instead of wholly trusting the Lord, he turns to a foreign nation and seeks deliverance from them. And ultimately we know that King Tiglath-Pileser III, he says, that's not enough. You know, I, I need something from you now that I've protected you. And so what King Ahaz eventually does is he defiles the worship of Israel and basically bowing down to the Assyrian king and the foreign nations. And what Isaiah is portraying what Isaiah is prophesying, he sees all of this taking place and he's coming to God's people and he's warning them and he's admonishing them and he's challenging them to say, 
there will be great difficulty and there will be a time that you'll be tempted to trust in the flesh and human authority. But Isaiah invites God's people to trust the Lord faithfully. And that's the tension that we see. And so Isaiah gives us these names and he wants us to know that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, a wonderful counselor is coming. A mighty God is, is soon to be here. An everlasting father will soon come and be a king over you. And the prince of peace will come and he will establish peace within the kingdom. And Isaiah invites us not to just merely see words on a page, but to experience the essence of who Christ is. That it is Christ who is wonderful. It is Christ who is our counselor. It is Christ who is mighty. It is Christ who is our king. And it's Christ who will bring us peace. And ultimately, Isaiah knows that we will never find what we're looking for in the things of this earth. We'll never find it. We'll always be lacking. We'll always be wanting more. And the fulfillment of this prophecy won't take place through Hezekiah that would come after King Ahaz. It won't come after Josiah. No, there is a better king that's coming. And 2 Samuel portrays that and, and tells us of a better king that's coming that will sit on the throne of David. And that's ultimately Jesus Christ. And so as we see and as we've looked every single week, what we know is that while the proximate fulfillment of this prophecy may have an earthly lineage to it, but ultimately the ultimate fulfillment of what Isaiah is speaking to is Jesus Christ coming in the first advent and coming to save his people, but also with a look toward the second advent and when Christ will come and establish his kingdom forever. So I invite you to stand this morning as we read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And we unpack Prince of Peace this morning. This is the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. I'm just going to read verse 6 this morning. But for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe that, would you say amen? amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we just stop and we say thank you this morning. Thank you for waking us up. And thank you for the promise that you've given us, even in your word and limitations, that your mercies are new this morning. That regardless of how our week has been, regardless of how yesterday may have gone, this morning was fresh. This morning was new. And it was filled not only with grace and not only with mercy, it was filled with provision from you to give us exactly what we need today. So, Father, most of all, what we know that we need is we need your son. We need Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that we would see him above all things this morning. We would see Christ exalted, and we would put our hope and our faith in Him. And as we come to Your Word, may we not come in arrogance and pride, but may we come in humility and come with a posture of listening and come with a posture of seeking to obey everything that You have for us this morning. God, and by Your Spirit, may we leave here changed. God, help us in that endeavor. Do what only You can do. Change our hearts, change our lives, change our minds. God, make us new. Transform us and conform us to the image of your Son. 
And it is him who we love, and it is in his name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning. I want to call your attention this morning to just two points as we unpack this Prince of Peace. The word for peace in this text is the Hebrew word shalom. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack the meaning of that term shalom, and I'm going to do it through really a set of tension. And the two points is brokenness realized and then brokenness restored. But point number one is brokenness realized. The Prince of Peace is coming. What does it mean when, when Isaiah says the Prince of Peace is coming? To understand the Prince of Peace, we first have to understand that there is a need for peace. There's brokenness. The brokenness has to be realized. And we know because we live in a fractured world. We live in a world that is fallen. Anyone who has lived for even a moment will tell you that this world is troubled. It's broken. And you look around, you look at the news, there's senseless murders that happen, natural disasters that take place, killings unexpectedly, military and political turmoil. There's terrorism, there's threats of violence. And if you were to just simple have a Google search this morning, you would find more than 40 worldwide conflicts taking place right now as we sit here this morning. And if you still don't believe me that this world is troubled, and I know that we all recognize that, it would be the one time that I would commend to you to turn on the evening news and just watch. And what you'll see is just unrest. You'll see tension. You'll see conflict and social and political spreads. But it's not only out there. It's also even closer to us. It's even sometimes within our families. Sometimes even our families are broken and we have tension within our families and conflicts. And maybe even this Thanksgiving season, you sat around the table and there was just disagreement. There just wasn't peace. There wasn't harmony like there once was. You see it within your family, the hostility sometimes in family get togethers. But it's even closer than that, isn't it? Because we look within our own hearts and we see that we too are broken. We're sorrow filled. We're Sometimes lamenting, sometimes sad, sometimes overburdened by the things of life. Sometimes we feel it physically, that our bodies are broken. And as sophisticated as we are, our bodies are breaking down. They are deteriorating. And and your chiseled physique will one day go away because we're breaking down. Our bodies are decaying, if they will. We have sickness, we have disease, we have achy bones, right? And we have health issues sometimes. We're broken. The world is broken. The world around us is broken. We see it within our family life. We see it within our own hearts, within our own lives, within our own bodies. And it was in 1719 that Isaac Watts penned these words, and it was never intended to be a Christmas hymn. He never intended that to be a Christmas hymn. But he says, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Watts knew the intended order of God's creation was harmony. It was intended that heaven and nature would sing together, that they would echo one another's praises, that they would be in together in union and harmony, and that there would be peace and that there would be joy in the world. But yet there was one problem. It was sin. And so he says in verse 3, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. 
He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. Watts knew that this world was broken. It was cursed. He knew that the brokenness ran deep within the roots of everything that we know. He knew it was broken in our world. He knew that there was brokenness within us. And Israel also understood this reality as well. They knew that they too were broken. That the peace, the shalom that they so desired, that they needed ultimately to be reconciled to God, to their heavenly Father, because the brokenness that they once knew was shattered. And what they longed for, shalom, what shalom hopes for, was ultimately a return all the way back to the book of Genesis and the Garden City. The, the city that Adam and Eve lived in and enjoyed perfect fellowship and harmony with God, that was perfect shalom. And we'll look at that in just a second. But peace wasn't isn't merely the absence of something. Shalom is the presence of something. More specifically, shalom is the presence of someone. One can demand peace, but shalom is two parties coming to an agreement. Peace is temporary, but shalom, the Hebrew word, is permanent. Teachers can demand that there be peace in the schoolyard with two children maybe scuffling. But shalom would be those two children coming and embracing as brothers. Peace can be negative, the absence of commotion or conflict. Shalom is positive. It's the presence of true peace. Peace can be partial. But shalom is complete. And that really is the most basic root understanding of the term shalom. It means wholeness. It means complete. And so to say that the prince of peace, shalom, is coming, the prince is coming to make us whole. And even in the midst of this crisis of Judah and King Ahaz, they believed that that peace that they were longing for was all too far gone, that shalom was never a reality. And that even the next king that would come, they recognized and understood that their bigger problem wasn't economic and it wasn't social. Their problem was that they were distant from God. And it didn't really matter if Hezekiah came and Ahaz came or, or Josiah came. They would only be able to give just a glimmer of hope for God's people. Because God's people needed something more than earthly peace. Because there was cosmic disharmony. There was harm, disharmony between God and man. And what I mentioned just briefly, shalom was rooted in the idea of the garden city in Genesis. And you turn back to Genesis chapter 3. You see this in the biblical text that Adam and Eve knew perfect harmony that existed between God and the earth and between God and man. And when Adam and Eve sinned, disharmony erupted and shattered the shalom that was there. 
And what you see is that Adam and Eve, even though they knew Shalom, they had, think about it, they had perfect fellowship. They had perfect harmony, unbroken fellowship with God in the garden. And then enters the serpent. Everything was good. Everything was perfect. They had perfect harmony and perfect fellowship. And then in Genesis 3, he said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the tree of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So immediately, what the serpent does is he enters, and the way that he attempts to disrupt the harmony and shalom and oneness was to cast doubt on the word of God and to cast doubt on the goodness of God to cast out on the kindness of God and the mercy of God. And did God really say? They had one rule. You have more than one rule in your home. They had one rule. And they broke it. And they sinned. And they disobeyed the holy God of all creation. And what happened is in that moment... Shalom was destroyed. It was like taking the biggest sledgehammer they could find and shattering all the goodness that God had designed them for. The image of God was marred because they fell. Their fellowship with God was now destroyed. Instead of loving and trusting the Lord, they would now have doubt about Him. And that's the same doubt and the same posture that we have as well. And so they're walking in the garden. They see the Lord in the garden. And what do they do? They hide themselves. They said in, in Genesis chapter 10, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and they were afraid. And because they were afraid, they hid themselves. That shalom destroyed. That is peace with God broken. The oneness, the fellowship, the wholeness that they once had, it's been marred. And so here comes these consequences to the serpent that you'll be destroyed by the seed of the woman and to the woman that your pain and childbirth shall increase. But notice what is mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed. Do you hear Isaac Watts? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat. All, out of the, all of your days, thorns and thistles, thorns infest the ground. It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Isaac Watts understood that thorns really did infest the ground. It's cursed. Our world as we know it, it's broken. It's cursed. Fellowship with God is broken. And the only way that shalom could be restored is that God would have to come and restore it himself. Israel's problem wasn't economic. It wasn't social. It was sin. Sin is the greatest threat to peace. Life is difficult. Life is hard. Why is life difficult? Why is life hard? You'll say because there's so much going on in the world. Because this relationship or because this thing happened here, this thing happened here. No, life is hard because of sin. 
But beloved, don't miss this truth as well. Life is also good because of Jesus. Life is hard, not because of what's going on all around us. It's because we live in a fallen world. And that brokenness gets closer and closer and closer in us. And what we realize, even to our horror, is the same brokenness that we see all around us lives in our hearts as well. And that has to be remedied. And the only way that shalom could come to this world, to your family, to your own heart, is that God himself must do it. God must bring restoration. He must restore brokenness. He must remove our sin from us. And the hope of what Isaiah is getting at, do you see what he's promising to Israel even in this moment? To say to Judah and to say to Israel, though you have rejected me, though you have sinned against me, though you have utterly disregarded everything that I've commanded of you, God says, I still haven't given up on you yet. And the peace of God is coming. And the Prince of Peace is coming. And He's coming to restore every bit of brokenness that you experience right now. And what Isaiah is portraying is that Prince of Peace has come. And He's come as Jesus Christ, to redeem and to restore shalom. Because brokenness is realized, but ultimately, shalom or peace will be restored. You know, it sounds kind of odd, but what you have within this tension, within the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God, there's a lot of issues that you can bring to the surface, but ultimately, I believe at the root of the issue at play it's a theological issue. And you're thinking, that sounds a little odd, but I'll try to unpack that, what I mean by that. Ultimately, this tension of shalom being broken and shalom being stored, what you have is the holiness of God and you have the sinfulness of man. And really, it boils down to that's a theological problem. Ultimately, man cannot enter into God's presence. Because why? Because God is so good and God is so holy. When He comes in contact with sin and, and with brokenness and with disobedience, His wrath consumes it. Because He's good, because He's just, because He is holy. It would be as like the closer you get to the sun, the hotter you get. And if you get too close, it'll burn you up. That's not because the sun is bad. It's because the sun is so good. And Jesus, God, because he is so good and because he is so holy, when he is in the presence of sin, his wrath consumes sinfulness. And that sinfulness is within our hearts. That sinfulness is within us. And you'll say, well, can he just forgive sin? He can't. Well, why can't he just forgive sin? Because not only is God loving and not only is God holy, God is also just. God is just in everything that he does. And if, if, if a good judge were to just dismiss crimes for no good reason, he would not be a good judge. He wouldn't be a faithful judge. And God is a good judge. In Exodus 34, Moses, you might remember this in Exodus 34, Moses asked God that he would show himself to him. And God does mercifully reveal himself to Moses. But he says, I'll only let you see my backside. 
So I'm going to give you just a glimpse, Moses. And the word of the Lord says of this holy God, and we see this problem, but in Exodus 34, you're going to see this tension, this theological problem, if you will. That the Lord descends in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You're thinking that sounds awesome. That sounds like good news. That's a great thing. And it is. But then you keep reading but will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers of, on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see the tension there? God is just, he is merciful, he is loving, he is compassionate, he is kind. But if you're guilty, he cannot just pardon you. Something must be done. How can God then? It's a theological problem. How can God forgive all types of sin and but also punish all types of sin? This is what theologians call the riddle of the New Testament. And you're maybe thinking, and you're sitting in this tension, you're thinking, that's a contradiction, is it not? How can God be all loving yet at the same time be judge of sin? The book of Proverbs brings this tension all the more to a reality and to a focal point. In Proverbs 17, 15, the word of the Lord says, He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous, both are like an abomination to the Lord. Why can't God forgive me? Because his word says, if he just lets you go and he condemns the righteous, he says they're both like an abomination to me. Yet, what you also have in the Scripture and in the New Testament is that you have Paul writing in Romans chapter 4, and he says, And to the one that does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What is going on? Do you see the theological problem that's here? God cannot just forgive sin, because to do so, it would be an abomination. Yet God does forgive sin. And yet how does he forgive sin and cause it an abomination? How does he justly forgive sin and be righteous in doing so? It's a theological problem. And all of it is summarized, excuse me. All of it finds its harmony, if you will. How does God avoid the charge of abomination? How does he satisfy his wrath? How does he lovingly forgive sinners? And all of this happens through atonement. It happens through sacrifice. And at the heart of shalom, at the heart of peace, what you have is that term atonement and sacrifice. Sacrifice was a common notion historically. Lots of religions practice sacrifice. But Israel in particular, of importance this morning, they too also practiced sacrifice. It was a part of Israel's history. They, sacrifice was a means of atonement for them. It was a way to bring harmony and fellowship between God and man. You even remember it as far back as the patriarchs. And Abraham knew it personally when God asked of him to go and offer up his only son Isaac. 
And in place of Isaac, he was ready to bring the knife down on his only son. And yet, what happened? There was a substitute. There was a sacrifice that was given, a fitting substitute in the place of his son, right? And his son walks away free. And then a ram caught in the thicket and he is sacrificed unto the Lord. And so his son would live. In the Exodus account, God's people lived. Why did they live when the death angel came all passing through Egypt? They lived because they saw the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And because God saw the blood on the lentils and the doorposts of the people of Israel, he what? He passed over them and destroyed the sinfulness of Egypt. There was a way in which that God would relate to his people and it was through sacrifice. And they even set up structures as they were wandering through the wilderness and they set up the tabernacle and they set up the temple in which they had this sacred devoted place in the heart of both of them to do what? To sacrifice unto the Lord, to make atonement for their sin. And it was a reminder of God's presence with, their, with his people. And the design of the tabernacle and the temple, these two great structures of Israel's history, were both designed in such a way that the closer you got to the center was the closer you got to the holiness of God. The temperature, if you will, raised. It got hotter and hotter and hotter. And the epicenter of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies in which a man could not enter but only one time of year, a special, special day called Yom Kippur, in which there would be a sacrifice that would be given unto the Lord. And according to Leviticus chapter 16, you needed a couple of things for the day of Yom Kippur. You needed a bull and you needed two goats. And on that day, on the day of Yom Kippur, the high priest would come and he would offer up a sacrifice and the blood of the bull and the blood of the goats, he would go into the Holy of Holies, he would make a sacrifice and he would sprinkle some of its blood on the mercy seat and he would sacrifice those two animals. But there was also a second goat and that goat was called the scapegoat. And that goat was eventually set free and it was set to run into the wilderness, but not before Aaron could lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat. And in, that, in so doing, he would confess the sins of Israel and the wickedness of God's people. And then he would send this scapegoat away into the wilderness to be remembered no more. And this was a picture of how God would forgive the sins of his people. That this goat would go run into the wilderness to be remembered no more. It was restoring shalom. It was recognizing their sinfulness, but God removing their sinfulness through the scapegoat. In the same way that Jesus Christ has forgiven us and he has cleansed us and he remembers our sin as far as the east is from the west. So I have removed your transgressions from you. But sin barred God's people from encountering the Lord. Why? Because in our sinfulness, we would be consumed by God's holiness. And any careless priest that flippantly walked into the holies of holies and he wasn't ceremonial clean, he would drop dead. Because shalom was broken. Unless peace was restored, there could be no union with God. Unless a fitting sacrifice was accepted unto the Lord, there could be no harmony with the Lord. There could be no wholeness. There could be no peace. There could be no shalom. And the key word that we have for the word atonement in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament 
is the word Kippur. You hear that in the term Yom Kippur. Yom meaning day, Kippur meaning atonement. It means to purge. It means to wipe. It means to cleanse. It's the notion of a fitting substitute suffering on behalf of another. And you see that all throughout the New, Old Testament as well. It's not just in the New, it's in the Old as well. What should Adam have done when his wife sinned against the Lord? Instead of hiding, Adam had an opportunity to be a substitute and say, don't put it on her. Put it on me. I'm the husband. I'm the man. I'm the provider. Don't take that on my wife. I'll be the substitute. That's what Adam should have done. But Adam didn't. Because Adam would fail. And the sinfulness of Adam points us to a better Adam, namely Jesus Christ in Romans 5, who has stepped in our place and said, put it on me and not them. He did what Adam didn't. He did what Adam couldn't. Jesus is the better Adam. You even see it in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember his call to ministry? And Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amidst of, amongst a people of unclean lips. And this burning coal comes from the altar and it touches his lips and it says, your sins have been atoned for. And you now have been cleansed. That's atonement. That's Kippur. A substitute, a ransom has to come and stand in our place. And what Isaiah is portraying is that that substitute is coming. The Prince of Peace is coming. The shalom that you once longed for, that you long for all of your life, that all the brokenness that you see will one day be mended by the Prince of Peace coming to restore everything that's been broken. And that Prince of Peace is also, barring from last week, he's the king of the world. <laughs> and he's coming to restore everything. We've said this every single week, that the writings of Isaiah begin to take a shift and a turn. And Isaiah begins to portray the servant motifs all throughout his writing. In Isaiah 42, and Isaiah 49, and Isaiah 50. But the most prominent is the one that we looked at last week. We'll look at it again this week. It's Isaiah 53. When Isaiah says, surely he has borne our grief, speaking of Christ. Surely he has carried our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us, there it is, peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is bringing all of this language of sacrifice and atonement and of peace and shalom, bringing that all together. The servant, he goes on to say, shall sprinkle many nations. The idea of sacrificial overtones, borrowing back from Leviticus 16 and 17. And he says, Jesus himself, he was pierced not for his transgressions. He had none. He was pierced for our transgressions, for our brokenness. He was crushed for our iniquities. For our wrongdoing, for our sinfulness against God. He was a substitute for us. He died in our place. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus had no sin to die for in himself. He died for the sins of another. He died for us. He died for you. And he died for your brokenness. 
The brokenness that we know in this world, the brokenness that we see all around us, and the brokenness that we know in our own hearts, Christ was crushed because of that brokenness and that sin against him. And he stood in our place. And what we rightfully deserve, Jesus said, put it on me. I will suffer for them. And in so doing, he suffers and yet he brings to us peace. And he heals our wounds. He suffers for our sin, not his own. He is like the sacrificial lamb that was led to the slaughter. And he makes intercessions for our transgressions. He bears our iniquities. He bears our sin. He becomes our guilt offering. He takes away our sinfulness as far as the east is from the west. He is our prince of peace. And that is why Paul in Colossians chapter 1, we're going to end as we look at Colossians 1 very quickly. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 1, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven. Do you hear Isaac Watts? Far as the curse is found. By making peace through his blood of his cross. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. He is the full and final expression of God. That's why God, that's why John says in his gospel that Jesus was the Word, because he's the full and final expression of God. Jesus is God. And you can make up a lot of assumptions about people just by looking at them. But if you really want to know the truth of them, go ask them and they'll tell you. Ashley's grandfather used to have a funny saying that anytime he saw a red car, he just assumed they must be a Crimson Tide fan. So if you, wear, if you drive a red car, we would just assume you're a Crimson Tide fan. But if we went and asked you, if we really wanted to know the truth, we would say, I noticed that your car is red and I'm assuming you're a Crimson Tide fan. And they may say, I don't even watch football. What are you talking about? We would know the truth because they tell us. We can make a lot of assumptions about things. But if we want to know what God says and we want to know who God is, God says, look at my word. I'll tell you. If you want to know what I'm like, look at my son. He is the full and final expression of the Lord. And he comes to bring peace. And that peace, as we see in Colossians 1, is first of all cosmic. Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, as far as the curse is found. And that's why Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 speaks of the wolf lying down with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the young goat and the calf and the lion are together. He's speaking of the garden city. It's all perfect again. Shalom has been restored. Heaven and nature, as Isaac Watts says, they are singing. They've been restored because God has restored the brokenness. The garden city is coming down. That's what we long for, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And he says, not only us, but all of creation is longing with eager longing and expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is saying, God, come and finish this. Come and bring restoration. And we too should be saying, God, come finish this. Come restore the brokenness that I feel. Come restore the brokenness in my heart. God, come finish your work. 
And he does it through his son, Jesus Christ, and he brings a cosmic peace to the world. But that peace is also personal. Look at verse 21. And you. And you. Not just the world, not just far as the curse is found. And you, too. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Verse 22, it's beautiful, is it not? He is now reconciled in his body of flesh. He's reconciled you through Christ. It's not just cosmic, it's personal. God has not just restored the world to himself. He's restoring you to himself as well. And because of who Jesus is, he's the Prince of Peace. And because he is the Prince of Peace, I just want to tell you this morning, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace and he is, then you have no hope of finding peace apart from him. The only place that you can find peace is in Christ. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Do you see Isaiah's point? Do you see that peace is about the defeat of evil? It's about the defeat of sin. It's about breaking down the barriers between God and man. But peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness, ultimately, isn't about the absence of something. It's about presence. It's about His presence. It's about the presence of Christ. Shalom is about the presence of the Prince of Peace. Do you know His peace this morning? Do you know what it's like to experience peace, deep peace in the midst of trouble? Peace in the midst of turmoil. Do you want peace this morning? Do you desire to be reconciled this morning? Oh, how we need peace. And we need the Prince of Peace. We're all troubled. We're filled. We're filled with anxiety. We're filled with heartache. We're filled with brokenness. Our world is broken. It was broken thousands of years ago. And we may look to a year like 2020 and think, man, our world is really big time broken. I thought it would be surely better by now. But it's not, is it? Because our world's broken. We're broken. Our families are broken. It's marred by sin. And the only hope that we have is to be restored to our Heavenly Father. The greatest enemy in your life and in this world is sin. And the only remedy for that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And He's given His life to save a people. Do you know Him this morning? Do you know His peace? Do you know His Son? Have you experienced His presence, His peace? Have you trusted in His gospel? Have you placed your faith in Christ, in Christ alone? Have you been reconciled to God? Have you, been, have you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and have you been redeemed by Christ, in Christ alone? Or do you need His peace? And understanding that we cannot find peace just by removing our frustrations and just by removing our trouble. Because peace isn't found when something is removed. Peace is only found when something is given. It's about presence. It's about His presence. The presence of Christ. And you can have all your worldly troubles go away, but still have a huge problem 
facing the Lord if your sins have not been atoned for. And so this morning, I invite you to receive the presence of the Prince of Peace. To rule and reign in your heart and your life and that troubles may come and beloved troubles may go. But when they do, to know that you have an anchor for your soul. His name is Jesus Christ. And the winds of trouble may come and they may batter your ship and you may think you're going under. But if the world give way, so help us, we still have Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace. Do you know him this morning? Would you come by faith and repentance? And trust Him as your Savior. That's the invitation this morning. To invite the Prince of Peace to redeem you and to restore your brokenness. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about Grace Life Church, please email us at gracelifedecatur at gmail.com or find us on Facebook by searching Grace Life Church Decatur. And if you live in the Decatur area, we would love for you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until next time on the Grace Life Church podcast.